The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. As many of you know who have been paying attention and following the program over the past several months, one of the uh, topics that is most occupying or most critical in the uh, public eye, certainly in terms of archaeology, is the historicity and the accounts of the Bible versus the archaeological record. Uh, In this program, we are very pleased to have one of the experts on this topic, Dr. Israel Finkelstein. He is a professor of archaeology at Tel Aviv University. He finished his Ph.D. in 1983 and has taught at the University of Chicago and the Sorbonne in Paris and has spent years researching at Harvard University and the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Dr. Finkelstein uh, conducted numerous field projects, among them at Biblical Shiloh and, of course, the very famous and celebrated site of Megiddo, uh, for which he is best known. He is the author of numerous articles and several very compelling volumes. Notable among the books are The Archaeology of the Israelite Settlement, Living on the Fringe, and probably one of the most widely circulated volumes, which is The Bible on Earth. Subsequently, he has also published a volume called David and Solomon, And it is my pleasure to have on this program Dr. Israel Finkelstein. Dr. Finkelstein, thank you for appearing on the program. Well, thank you very much, and I'm pleased to be on the the show. Let's start by discussing a very basic question and uh, looking at a little bit of chronology, and that is how the Bible and the archaeological record converge. Your particular interest, of course, is in the Old Testament. And what I'd like to know is, what can you tell us about the background of archaeology in the Bible in historical perspective, and where matters stand today? Well, uh, archaeology um, uh, was uh, kind of introduced into the arena of uh, attempts to verify the historicity of the biblical record in the beginning of the 20th century. By the way, mainly, in a way, by American archaeologists, uh, first and foremost among them, William Foxwell Albright. 
And the, the idea was that archaeology can provide evidence that will uh, uh, contradict uh, trends in Europe in the 19th century to argue uh, against uh, several chapters uh, in the, or parts uh, in the Bible as historical records. And th there was this atmosphere of uh, black and white. Either the Bible is fully historical or the Bible is not historical. I think that both are wrong. And we need to look very carefully into uh, each and every verse in the Bible, uh, chapter or even verse, in order to check uh, a record against uh, first and foremost archaeological record, but also ancient Near Eastern historical records, extra-biblical historical records. The archaeology has a big advantage in a way, because archaeology provides one with the uh, uh, direct, uh, real-time evidence the moment you put the spade in the ground, if one is in good control over chronology and stratigraphy and all this. Whereas the biblical record is more complicated in a way for the simple reason that uh, in the historical parts in the Bible there are several layers, many layers maybe even, and they cover many centuries. And it is not always easy to identify the period in which we one uh, uh, is uh, standing, so to speak, uh, when we look at a certain chapter. So uh, we have a record uh, in, the in the Bible, which uh, should, of course, be integrated into historical research. However, we first need to try to identify where we are in, in terms of chronology. So these are, these are basically the, the differences between the biblical record and archaeology. And in recent years, we are more and more in a situation that we try to, first of all, uh, treat archaeology independently, also biblical archaeology, that is to say, archaeology of the Iron Age in the Levant, in Israel, uh, and neighboring countries, to deal with it independently of the biblical record first, and only then try to incorporate the two. And this is when uh, where we come with the questions regarding chronology, because uh, there was some sort of a circular argument in uh, dealing with archaeology in the past vis-a-vis -vis the biblical record, because the idea was the following, that here we have, uh, we know where, let's say, the conquest of Joshua in the book of Joshua, how to date it, in the 13th century BC, so let's go to 13th century layers, and then find their evidence to support the biblical uh, story. And this, as far as I can judge, is a circular argument. What we are doing today, we today um, uh, try to establish, uh, first of all, chronology according to radiocarbon studies. And in the last 10 years, we have made huge progress for both the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And sometimes we know today that uh, we are in different positions when it comes to um, comparing uh, what we find to the biblical record. If you look at the radiocarbon record, uh, the radiocarbon record, of course, has also changed because of changing calibration curves, because of changing adjustments to uh, the materials that you're dating, depending on what you date, and specifically if you're dating charcoal, if you're dating bulk organic sediment. The question that I would have for you is how far off is it possible to establish the chronology that the traditional Bible has put together based 
based on on its accounts and its historicity and the radiocarbon record and how has that changed over the past 10 years well regarding regarding the biblical record sometimes we are five centuries off because uh, let me give you an example i participated a while ago in a conference in san diego about uh, exodus and in the beginning of the conference there was a debate among scholars whether the Bible describes a reality that comes from the late Bronze Age, let's say in the 13th century BC, or whether the Bible provides uh, information that comes from uh, the history of Egypt uh, in the 6th century, 7th and 6th centuries BC. So here we have a difference of what, four or five centuries in uh, attempts to identify the background of a story in the Bible, in the book of uh, Exodus, let's say. Archaeology is in a different situation. We, I believe, let me start from the end. I believe that today we are in a situation that we are capable of dating, if, you, if we work properly with radiocarbon, we can uh, get uh, a result of uh, uncertainty of 30 years or so, 50 years, let's say. When I say working properly, properly I mean that uh, we date uh, only short-lived uh, samples, uh, we date enough samples, we uh, extract samples from uh, several layers in a site uh, that comes from secure stratigraphy, and then we deploy uh, a good model in order to uh, reduce the uncertainties. So, let me give you another example. We're speaking now, I'm moving now from the uh, period of, um, from the book of Exodus to the book of Kings. Uh, and uh, attempts to verify the historical background of the story about the United Monarchy of David and Solomon. United Monarchy of David and Solomon is basically a biblical story. And it may be historical, it may be more on the side of uh, the ideology and theology of the biblical authors. So we need basically archaeological evidence to support it. And this was one of the main targets of biblical archaeology from the very beginning, from the 20s, from, let's say, excavations of the University of Chicago at Megiddo, uh, excavation that uh, started in, in 1925, almost a century ago. And the idea was that one needs to look um, in certain places, be them either Jerusalem or Megiddo, in order to identify uh, monuments, uh, monumental architecture, things that can uh, be uh, connected one way or, or the other to certain verses in the Bible. And uh, lo and behold, uh, certain structures um, uh, had been identified and they related to biblical stories, first and foremost among them several palaces in the territory of the later Northern Kingdom of Israel and especially at Megiddo. But the question, of course, is, do we really know that these buildings date to the 10th century BC, which is the proper uh, place uh, for David and Solomon when we calculate according to extra-biblical uh, historical records? And the answer is that we simply don't know, because then here we go again into these circulars, circular arguments. When we started bombarding these layers, including the layers at Megiddo, with the um, uh, radiocarbon studies, samples. It has become crystal clear, in my opinion, that um, the buildings that had traditionally been 
affiliated with King Solomon and identified as supplying the evidence for this glorious, glamorous united monarchy, it became crystal clear that uh, they date in the ninth century, about a century later than the time of Solomon. So here, when we, if we can get to a resolution of uh, even 50 years, it uh, may be enough in order to rule out a possibility. Mm-hmm. Let's look at, let's put it even in broader perspective. If we look at, say, the biblical, traditional biblical lands uh, in a context that's more global, well, not even globally, but more regional in terms of the Middle East, we look at technological innovations, say, that are Middle East-wide and possibly a little bit more extensive. What, how would you place generally the types of events reported, into bi- the bi- reported in the Bible to, for example, the beginning of the Bronze Age, which is traditionally thought of as about 3000 BC, and the beginning of the Iron Age, which is about 1000 BC, which plus or minus, even given the radiocarbon dating differentials, would sort of conform to David and Solomon. Can you put this in some kind of a perspective so that uh, the general audience can get Get a, a picture of how the Bible fits into these technological changes that seem to be more than just local but regional. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we know today uh, that uh, the late Bronze Age ended in a big crisis uh, in the entire region of the Eastern Mediterranean and the uh, Levant. Not only here, uh, the entire region from, let's say, Greece uh, in the west to Egypt in the south, or Anatolia, that is to say Turkey in the north, and Syria, and so on and so forth, a big crisis at the end of the Bronze Age. Uh, The most important event here in this part, in the Levant, is the pullout of the withdrawal of Egypt, because Canaan was part of the Egyptian empire in the late Bronze Age, in the time of the great kings of pharaohs, of the 19th, uh, 18th, and 19th dynasties, 20th dynasty in Egypt. And uh, there is enough evidence, uh, both historical from Egyptian records and other records, and from archaeology, and solid evidence that uh, Egypt pulled out uh, in the late uh, 12th century BC, let's say very close to 1100 BC, 3100 years ago. And this starts the Iron Age, although. I must say in parenthesis that the beginning of the Iron Age is not necessarily the beginning of the use of iron, uh, but that's another story. But these are so, generic these generic divisions of technology that, yeah, yeah, that, that have exactly. to be very general. Exactly. And then, then we, we are speaking here in terms of, in, in parallel lines. On one, on one hand, we are speaking historical, uh, in historical, historical terms and rule of Egypt and so on, and pull out and this and that, and uh, then later rise of territorial kingdom, and then other empires later. On the other hand, you were mentioning rightly uh, the perspective of uh, technologies, which, 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 which is a different story in a way, connected, of course. And then, and, then, uh, and then we have the historical record of the Bible, which needs to be put in... Uh, uh, plugged, so to speak, into the general picture of the ancient Near East, which means, uh, can we date biblical figures? We can ask this uh, regarding uh, biblical figures of a very early, quote-unquote, history of ancient Israel from the patriarchs and so on. I'm saying, quote-unquote, because I'm not sure that we are speaking about 
sequential history here, but that's another story. More important for this discussion of the two of us is the question whether we can um, uh, properly identify the time of uh, Israelite and Judite monarchs, David, Solomon, uh, Ahab, uh, king of, of Israel, um, Ezekiah, king of Judah, Josiah, king of Judah, and so on. How do we do this? We do this uh, according to extra-biblical records, which are well dated. I refer here mainly to the Assyrian records. The Assyrian records mention uh, some of the biblical figures, and accordingly we can put them into context of the ancient Near East. And I think that we are in good shape here, which means uh, that uh, uh, when we follow those uh, Judite and Israelite monarchs from late to early, we are in, uh, on, on safe grounds until the beginning of the 9th century. Let's say because King Ahab uh, is mentioned by Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, in 853 uh, as a participant in the great battle of Karkar today in Syria. So we can look, when, when we have this and Shalmaneser is well identified, we identified we can locate Ahab as well. The question, of course, is when we go back to those monarchs in the Bible who are referred to with the, what I would call typological numbers. Uh, David ruled according to the biblical record for 40 years. Uh, Hebron and Jerusalem together, Solomon for 40 years. 40 years in the Bible is not a, a real date. Is, 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 is an, this is an, a, a, a typological number which means many years. So here we are, we are in a more precarious situation, so to speak, that we uh, need to enter all sorts of assumptions. But basically, uh, when you think about it, if we are on safe grounds in the middle of the 9th century, there's not much left to pull back into the time of David and Solomon, even without uh, 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 accepting uh, uncritically a big number of years for this or that monarch. So we are in the 10th century. And this is where we are looking for them. And here, once we know that they are in the 10th century, we can try to connect them to the ground according to radiocarbon studies. Okay. We're going to have to take a break, and we will be back in a very short period of time, in a few, a few minutes, uh, with our very fascinating discussion on the Bible, archaeology, and the convergence of both records after these words. Please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Adoption changes a family forever for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made from lifestyle to financial and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein again with a unique version of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are continuing with our discussions of the Bible and archaeology and how the most recent advances in archaeological methods and and specifically in archaeological science have altered the way in which archaeologists are looking at the convergence between both records. Dr. Finkelstein, you had talked before about the figures themselves and the overriding importance of David and Solomon, the United Kingdom, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what I'd like to get your uh, feelings about is how carefully can we take the uh, the, the uh, biblical accounts of Moses or of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Are these basically probably, as many people have suggested, that these are the images we have of very important people at very important times whose influences were probably probably grow over the years because the times were so important and their impacts on the times were so important. Were they individuals? Were they probably a compilation of various images that people had of uh, important people at, at particular places and points in time? What is your feeling on was there a Moses? Was there an Abraham? Was there an Isaac? <laughs> well, this is a, a fascinating question, a very uh, difficult one. I will do my best to uh, answer. I think that first, first of all we need to say, to put on the table, the very simple truth that archaeology is not capable of identifying an individual, unless this individual is mentioned in a record 
there is either found, I mean, written record, that is either, either found in an archaeological excavations or known from the monuments of Egypt or uh, things like that. Having said that, uh, I need to turn to the biblical record uh, uh, in a way, and I think that biblical scholarship, I'm a little bit in the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years also on the side of biblical scholarship, so I can say, I think, uh, quite uh, securely that modern biblical scholarship acknowledges that uh, we, when speaking about the patriarchs, for instance, Abraham and Jacob and, and Isaac, we first of all are dealing with different traditions that were put together in a relatively late date, which means Abraham, for instance, is a story of a hero of uh, the southern highlands of Canaan, of the region later known as Judah, later according to the biblical historical sequence, let's put it this way. Whereas Jacob uh, is a different story, because Jacob, when you plot the geography of Jacob on a map, it is very clear and easy to identify that Jacob is far from Judah. Jacob is an Israelite hero. He comes from the north. He is a, a, a patriarch of the northern kingdom. So, there is good reason to believe that in the beginning there were separate stories and separate traditions that were put together relatively late. Now, what does this mean for the question of historicity? Are they historical? I don't know. They, there could have been a memory of a hero, of a leader, of a great man in the very far past. Who knows? However, because the stories, first of all, come from different places, and because they are layered, which means they have in them certainly a layer that come from, comes from the time of Judah and Israel before the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Northern Kingdom a while earlier, but there are also later layers that also serve later needs of later authors. So it is extremely difficult, this is the reason why it is so difficult to answer this question regarding the, 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 the historicity of the figures. However, I think that they tell us, even if we look at them not as specifically in an attempt to locate them in a certain period of time in, the, in, an, in, in antiquity, they tell us a lot also about the people who needed them and who wrote about them and who compiled the stories and put them in the way they put in the, in the biblical record. For instance, one needs to ask, I will give you an example and leave it like that, leave it open then. One needs to ask, for instance, who needed to tie together two different stories of Abraham and Jacob? Why? And why in this order? If they, if we are speaking about uh, uh, traditions that come from different regions. So the author could have theoretically said that Jacob was the first patriarch and his son was X and his grandson was Abraham. So why put them in, an, in, in, in a certain order and why put them together? These are the fascinating questions. 
But if we go through time and we look at the archaeological record, obviously, once you get into the Iron Age, or, or well, I call it Iron Age, but once we get after 1000 BC and we look at the historicity and we look at the archaeological record that clearly has some kind of a strong connection to David and Solomon, I mean, that information broadens extensively and you can start to interfinger the, uh, the archaeological record with the Bible to, to a much greater this extent and with much greater detail, correct? Yes, this is correct. Now, let me ask you about your own excavations at Megiddo. Megiddo is obviously one of the most important sites in the world, um, certainly in terms of the Bible itself. Uh, from the Hebrew, it, it, it says, How Megiddo, which is the mountain of Megiddo, it's the site of the potential Armageddon, and obviously it's, it's a site whose significance has been embraced, especially by New Testament people or by Christianity generally. I would love to hear your perspective on Megiddo and how you started and how your views on what the site means have changed. Well, when we speak about Megiddo, I think, and on the Voice of America, I think, first of all, we need to pay tribute to the great excavators of the University of Chicago in the 1920s and 1930s. This was the, I think, biggest, if I may say so, excavation and most influential excavation in the history of archaeology of this country has been, so even today. And... Uh, Megiddo, because of the input of the um, University of Chicago expedition, Megiddo has become the cradle of biblical archaeology, which means I see Megiddo as some sort of a pre-computer switchboard, if you wish, <laughs> that all the, all the lines of information, you know, at the end connect in the same place, at that place, and the entire stratigraphy and chronology, and thereby material culture of the Bronze and Iron Ages were, in a way, established at Megiddo. And this is the reason why, at a certain point, uh, well, I must say 20 years ago, I decided to uh, leave other regions. I was working at the time in the highlands and uh, also in the arid uh, zones of the Levant in the south, in the Sinai before, and then in the Negev. And I said to myself, well, time has come to go back to the center place and try to verify the entire picture of stratigraphy and chronology and so on. So this is my target, my goal at Megiddo. And it is, uh, the excavation at Megiddo is uh, a, an international consortium. There are Israeli and American institutions and European institutions. As you know, uh, Eric Klein of uh, GW is my partner there. He was on your show, I think. And uh, we, this is exactly what we are uh, trying to do. We are trying to put to the test the entire picture from the uh, first urban uh, wave, first uh, urbanization process in the Levant in the late 4th millennium BC, that is to say 5,000 years ago, uh, through the entire uh, phases, the, the old phases, all phases of the Bronze and Iron Ages. So this is the, the first thing to say. And Megiddo is also a place where I decided at a certain point to introduce, to try to, uh, how to say, to update, to, to help update, I'm not alone in this, to help update a little bit uh, also uh, the methods of archaeology, especially of biblical archaeology, and to make it some sort of uh, laboratory, a laboratory for modern 
techniques, methods, especially on the side of microarchaeology, we can speak about this later, especially on the side of dating methods, dating techniques. And, uh, and this is what we have been doing in the last 20 years, slowly going down in this fascinating place. And of course, a place like this, which is mentioned uh, many times, both in the Bible and in uh, Egyptian and also Assyrian records, uh, is also a key for establishing what we uh, mentioned before, the connection between uh, archaeology and the historical record of the ancient Near East. Would you say that uh, Megiddo is now sort of a microcosm or a time capsule of most of the biblical periods? If we were to look at one site and say, okay, on a site-specific level, this is what we're looking at in the Bronze Age to Iron Age transitions in terms of a variety of things, including subsistence patterns, economies, uh, social organizations. Is this the type of information that is getting uh, developed and processed uh, in an advanced state now because of new technologies and uh, new procedures? Yes, indeed. I think that uh, there is no site like Megiddo. Uh, first and foremost, because of the excavations in the past, both a German expedition that had had taken place before University of Chicago in the beginning of the 20th century and the University of Chicago. There's no other site where uh, one can uh, really investigate at the same time Iron Age, Late Bronze, Middle Bronze, and Early Bronze. And here, the University of Chicago, in a way, opened, so to speak, uh, the belly of the mound for me and my colleagues to come and, uh, you know, uh, with our pathetic brushes, I would say, in order to check the stratigraphy and the chronology and so on. There's no other site like this. We have the entire record from, let's say, um, uh, the Persian period in the 5th century or 4th century BC, all the way down to bedrock, which is Neolithic times, with uh, something like, I, I, I never cease, I never stop calculating, but I think that we can calculate something like uh, 40 settlements, 4-0 settlements, built one on top of the other. This is why also it is the ideal place for to serve as a laboratory for chronology. And this is the reason why recently we have published an article in the, the journal Radio Carbon, which is being published by the University of Arizona, uh, uh, on the entire sequence, or almost the entire sequence. And in a situation like this, one can really construct a model and impose, if you wish, the stratigraphy on the results, which means I can tell the model to put the results in a certain order, not to tell them when, but to tell them the order only. And uh, this is a huge advantage. Uh, of course. Science. When you look at this, I mean, the original University of Chicago excavations, and I don't know a whole lot about them, but they were essentially trying to establish a chronology and to look at the stratigraphy and the deposits in the stratigraphy, the individual uh, activity areas, and just to develop sort of a very baseline chronology. Does that chronology hold up? And in terms of trying to fill in the gaps and in terms of trying to look at what radiocarbon is doing to refine that stratigraphy, what would you say in, in, in the not too complicated terminology, what have you picked up that they did not? And were there basic assumptions of a the general chronology correct? The general chronology was correct, first of all, we must say, which means I am not here to uh, correct them by uh, 
suggesting that a certain layer is uh, five centuries or four centuries later or early. Uh, the most, uh, if I give you an example, recently we have, uh, uh, we are now publishing uh, uh, a study on uh, the uh, early Bronze Age in the third millennium. And we are correcting past assumptions by 200 years. When, when it comes to the Iron Age, even less than that. So there were good archaeologists. They were not equipped uh, with the same methods that we are uh, now lucky to be equipped with. And the whole story was very different in the 20s and 30s. Also in the scope of excavations. I mean, until now, I'm 20 years at a site. And once in a while, when I woke up or down, you know, in the early morning or later, and I look around me and I say to myself, this is impossible. I mean, the scope of excavation, the, 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 the sheer size of uh, what uh, had been done, of the monuments, we must uh, admit that we work in a different method today with many advantages, but also disadvantages. I, today, with, with my methods, cannot expose monuments in the same way. Mm-hmm. So, in connecting to them, in connecting to them, I, uh, in fact, on one hand, benefit from their success of ex- exposing huge monuments, palaces, temples, and so on. And on the other hand, then I can come with my pathetic brushes. <laughs> but without, without them, the, the story would have been very different. The so, more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? In a way, yes, in a way. However, we, you know, this, this is where we, we come to modern archaeology and the story of modern archaeology. Archaeology, I'm sure that you are aware of the fact that has gone through a very dramatic revolution in um, the last, uh, what, 20 years or so, with the introduction of the concept of microarchaeology. And uh, we are aware today of something which is so logical and so obvious that uh, it's quite amazing to think that we um, uh, had not been aware of it before. And, and I mean that the archaeological record is can be divided into the macro side, which means I walk on the mound and I see walls and I see uh, uh, layers of destruction and I see uh, vessels and I see objects that are being retrieved from uh, in, uh, during the dig. All this is the macro, the, uh, what, what, what can be seen by the naked eye. However, there is an entire record which we cannot see, the microarchaeology record that can be identified only under a microscope. And with and the use it, of archaeological scientific techniques. Right. And is is no less important. And this is the big revolution of the last, what, 20 years or so. Absolutely. We'll be back with our discussion for our last segment of uh, this very fascinating topic of the Bible, its historicity, and its convergence with the archaeological records right after these words. Please stay tuned. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. 
Goodnight Maryland Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. My guest today is Dr. Israel Finkelstein, who has in many ways revolutionized the study of biblical archaeology in the Holy Land and has been a leading figure in establishing connections between the Bible and the written record and the archaeological record. And, of course, one of the many aspects that has allowed Dr. Finkelstein and other researchers of the present age to proceed along these lines is the innovations introduced by archaeological science. And uh, when we cut into the last break, we were discussing the differences between macroarchaeology, which is the type of archaeology that is palpable, you can see it, you can visualize it, and using Megiddo as an example, of course, the very structural features that are very, very clear in the archaeological record, versus what we have now, which is looking at archaeology on a much finer scale and looking not only at the fact that the deposit exists, but looking inside the deposits to decipher what they mean. Uh, Dr. Finkelstein, why don't you expound a little bit on the techniques, technologies, and the interpretations that you've been able to generate by delving into microarchaeology over the past few years? Yes, let me, uh, let me give you an example from the Negev Highlands, from the southern desert zone of Israel, only because tomorrow morning I'm going there. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a good, a good reason for me to think about it. Uh, in the Negev, in the south, in the arid zone, 
there is a system of uh, sites which uh, had the tradition which were identified before as uh, fortresses and affiliated with King Solomon and the uh, desert trade and the trade uh, with far away regions and uh, stories like uh, such as the Queen of Sheba and so on and so forth. And they were seen as uh, the southern border of the great empire of, of, of David and more so Solomon. And uh, we started the project there about 10 years ago, I think, in the desert highlands. Uh, and it is being conducted by uh, uh, an associate, uh, uh, Dr. Ruth uh, Shachar Gross of the Weizmann Institute of Science here in Israel and myself and our students and other researchers. And the idea was to attack, so to speak, these sites from a different perspective, the perspective of microarchaeology vis-a-vis dating, vis-a-vis traditions versus uh, subsistence economy and so on. And uh, today we can uh, go to a site like this, excavate, take samples, put them under the microscope and try to look at evidence from the sediments that can shed light on subsistence economy and also dating if there is uh, organic material. And we, we have learned in the last few years that there is nothing like no organic material. Almost always, if one works properly, one can identify organic material for dating. Right. One, way or, one way or the other. And when it comes to these sites, and this connects, of course, to your question before on the uh, United Monarchy, uh, when we are looking at these sites, what, what, what we see first is the, is, is the fascinating uh, fact that there is no evidence for... Uh, Unlike theories before, there is no evidence for uh, dry farming. There's no evidence for agriculture. These people subsisted on, well, mainly, I would say, animal husbandry. But this is not enough. So then what else? So in order to understand what else, I mean, this, is what, this was from looking at the sediments and looking at phytolites, which means the silica particles which come from the cells of the uh, of of uh, of uh, uh, botanic material of plants uh, in the past and can tell us uh, about the, the animals which uh, were there what uh, they ate and so on and so forth and then from there we turn to look to looking into the uh, for instance vessels found at the site pottery vessels in these pottery vessels we conducted um, a petrographic study by uh, uh, my associate uh, Mario Martin, and we discovered that in the, under a microscope only, you can see this, that in the pottery they used in order to prepare, to make vessels, they used as inclusions slag, copper slag. Mm-hmm. And the copper slag can come only from the copper production areas of the Araba Valley, which is about what, 50, 60, 70 kilometers away. Right. Which to means the south. that, yeah, yeah to which the south. That, exactly uh, it, to the east and south. Which means that we have another side of understanding their their daily life because they were so they were engaged in animal husbandry and then also in connections and uh, I mean production and transportation of copper. But then when, as I told you, uh, today we are convinced that if we work properly, we can always find organic material for dating. And when we put a big effort on dating these sites and extracting organic material, the results were fascinating because uh, the United Monarchy, as we spoke before, is in the 10th century. The results 
of the radiocarbon studies from these sites were all or almost all in the ninth century and deep in the ninth century. Right. Which means which means again later than the time of the great United Monarchy, as described in the biblical record. So so here here we have an example where of 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 a project where we. Uh, 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 put to the test different methods of microecology. By the way, I must tell you about another study which was not connected directly to this uh, negative project, project, but is connected indirectly. And that is our attempt to uh, identify the content of uh, Phoenician vessels uh, that date around uh, 1000 BC. You but one of the... One of the most intriguing things that you just said was that, that there was no dry farming in the Judean area at all, right? So if you're looking at the United Kingdom, you're looking at two environmental zones that are so very, very different, with different subsistence bases, then the achievements of David and Solomon in that sense of bringing them together, this is an amazing change, and it sort of seems like it would be sort of a nick point in the chronology, a nick point in the social organization, and they obviously did something that was very, very unique. Yes, and then and then of course when I speak about no no dry farming and no agriculture, of course this is in the south in the in the more yes. arid zones. When we move to the north, uh, it, 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 we are facing a different story. But let me just say add one one or two uh, more pieces of information to this because then one can ask a question regarding climate because we know today. You know, when I was a student many years ago, there was a huge debate. Uh, in archaeology and in paleoclimate uh, studies, whether the climate of the last 5,000 years was has been stable, or where, whether uh, there were changes in the last uh, five millennia, and today we know for sure that there were changes. There is no question about it from different uh, studies that are being conducted um, uh, in this country and uh, in other parts of uh, so the world. Uh, yes, the world. I, I'm speaking here about the Eastern Mediterranean, Levant. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. so, so, for so for instance, let me give you one small example. We in the in the capacity of this big uh, microarchaeology project that I uh, uh, directed together with a friend from the Weizmann Institute, uh, Steve Weiner, in the last uh, five years, we extracted the uh, sediments from the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee in order to count uh, pollen by another associate, uh, Daphne Langut from Tel Aviv University, and according to the pollen record, reconstruct uh, climate in antiquity. And, and, uh, and this is really amazing, because then we can see, we can add the perspective of climate to understanding long-term historical processes. When you look at the pollen record, this is this is obviously no, new information. First of all, if you're looking at desertic areas, any any even minimal changes in rainfall completely change the landscape. Sure, so sure, sure. that that that's a, a very major step right in that direction. What um, are the climatic changes that even your preliminary analysis are showing? One thing that we see very clearly, and uh, we are not the only ones. <clears throat> this comes from several. Uh, studies of several groups, not only in Israel, there is a group, for instance, in Toulouse, uh, in France, that comes with the same uh, results from other places in the, in the Near East. There, we, we come with evidence for, and this is really interesting, for major dry phase, major crisis 
uh, in the late Bronze Age. And we are now convinced, I should say maybe, that um, the collapse of civilization at the end of the Bronze Age, the Bronze Age crisis around the 1200 BC, uh, was uh, very tightly related to, uh, uh, to climate, to, to this dry phase uh, in the late second millennium BC. The fascinating thing is that we have the pollen record that uh, shows us that uh, there is this uh, dry phase, uh, shrinkage of uh, horticulture, shrinkage of uh, olive culture and so on. Uh, which is, as you said correctly, which is especially crucial when it comes to the Levant and to the steppe areas. I mean, I, I live in Tel Aviv, you're speaking with Tel Aviv now, so in Tel Aviv, whether, when, if we take uh, Tel Aviv from 550, 600 millimeters a year to 500, nothing happens. But if one takes Damascus from 350 to 250, this is a real disaster. Right. So, so these are, uh, uh, these are uh, small, small examples. So, so on one hand, we have the pollen record. On the other hand, we have a well-dated record for destruction of cities uh, in the Levant exactly in the same period of time. And on the third level, which is really wonderful, there are ancient Near Eastern written records that come from Hatti in the north, from the Hittites, from Ugarit on the coast of Syria, from Egypt. And these records tell us about uh, problems of uh, drought and famine exactly in the same period of time. And then, of course, you have that fantastic record of changes in the Dead Sea level. Right. This which is, is also... Definitely. And so you have a, a variety of converging areas. Of course, Israel in particular is such a wonderful laboratory for these things because the differences in geography occur in such a very small area so you can look at it's like a little laboratory of environmental change and microenvironmental change over a very small area for us it would be a place like the size of New Jersey which has both desertic areas and uh, and temperate zones as well so right. in in many ways it's probable that that's why all these incredible cultural developments occurred in the Bible generally yes indeed and so where do you see your Megiddo research going forward? What kinds of uh, advances, what kinds of uh, horizons are you exploring right now? Well, yes, I mean, uh, time has come for me also to think about, uh, uh, you know, I'm always joking with my students, what will I do when I grow up? And <laughs> <laughs> time has come. <laughs> so at Megiddo, we still have a way to go in order to... Uh, accomplish uh, the original goal, which means to re-establish stratigraphy and chronology. I, we are working there every second year, so I suppose that we have like three, four, five campaigns to go in order to achieve this. On the side of microarchive, and I'm also continuing my work in the Negev, as I mentioned to you, tomorrow morning I'm off to the Negev for uh, research of another period. And then, and then, of course, on the microarchaeology level, at the end of this uh, huge um, uh, European Research Council funded project, I had to ask myself, you know, where to continue? Which are, we, we worked in 10 tracks. And the question was, which, are, which of the 10 tracks are uh, important enough to try to bring uh, funding and continue? So I think that, in my opinion, the two major questions that uh, are on the table for 
future uh, archaeological investigation are mapping of the of, of ancient climate and mapping of populations. Yesterday I attended a lecture here at Tel Aviv of uh, David Reich from Harvard on uh, ancient DNA studies of uh, the ancient population in Europe. Mapping the populations is really extremely important. This is the still the dark side, which are which is still dark in 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 all this fascinating archaeological uh, endeavor. And so uh, you're going to have another few seasons in Megiddo. Yes, yes, we are going. Uh, next season is in 2016. You are most welcome, sir, to come and uh, and join us, uh, either with or without a pickaxe. I may do that. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, uh, and then, uh, we are continuing with our efforts uh, uh, in paleoclimate, in 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 uh, in, uh, in attempts to uh, advance uh, ancient DNA studies here in Israel, which is not uh, easy because preservation is not good here, and we must find ways to overcome this problem. Uh, so, so these are the main the main goals. And on that note, I would like to thank my very special guest and very informative research scholar, Dr. Israel Finkelstein, for joining the program. We thank you so much for appearing on the program. Thank you for having me. And next time we will have another show in a week's time. And until then, stay well. And the past is the guide to the future. Stay tuned and stay well. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.